Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. The title of this section is A New Feminism Which Rejects the Temptation of Imitating of Models models of Male Domination. And that is a line directly from Evangelium Vitae uh, 99. And before, okay, it's up there. All right. I want to go into the history a little bit, and then we'll, uh, the the history that that was leading, the, the very immediate history that was leading up to the document. So Evangelium Vitae, you'll see at the bottom there is, it comes out March 25th, 1995. Number 99, as I mentioned in the keynote, is the section where he talks about the, the genius of women, and we're going to go through that. But there's a lead-up. This is, this, the, the, the message of Evangelium Vitae and the message of 99 in particular is all leading up to the Beijing conference, which was going to be happening in September of 1995. And every time I use this slide, I realize I should probably reorganize it. But anyway, he meets with Gertrude Mangella. See, John Paul II meets with Gertrude Mangella. She's the Secretary General of um, the Fourth World Conference on Women. And he meets with her in May, gives her a, a message, which is published. And we won't go through that, but talks about, you know, the, the situation of women around the world and violence against women, lack of education, et cetera, et cetera. And then he releases the, the letter to women in June of 1995. So for now, I want to focus on the section from Evangelium Vitae 99. And I'm not sure. Sh- oh, next, next slide, please. And I have the whole text up there, even though I know that's not the greatest to do with PowerPoints. But sometimes for conversations, I find it's much better to have the text in front of you. So the, we're going to go through the, a couple of paragraphs here. Um, just to look at this. So the, he says here, in transforming culture so that it supports life, women occupy a place in thought and action, which is unique and decisive. It depends on them to promote a new feminism, which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of all women in every aspect of life of the life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. Now, people talk about Francis being verbose, but so is Jean Paul. Um, this is <laughs> continuing. Making my own the second words, uh, excuse me, making my own the words of the concluding message of the Second Vatican Council, I address to women this urgent appeal. Reconcile with life. You are called to bear witness to the meaning of genuine love of that gift of self and of that acceptance of others which are present in a special way in the relationship of husband and wife, but which also ought to be at the heart of every other interpersonal relationship. The experience of motherhood makes you acutely aware of the other person and at the same time confers on you a particular task. Motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life as it develops in the woman's womb. This unique contract with the new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude towards human beings, not only towards her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks the woman's personality. 
A woman welcomes and carries in herself another human being, enabling it to grow inside her, giving it room, respecting it in, in its otherness. Women first learn and then teach others that human relations are authentic if they are open to accepting the other person, a person who is recognized and loved because of the dignity which comes from being a person and not from the other considerations such as usefulness, strength, intelligence, beauty, or health. This is the fundamental contribution which the Church and humanity expect from women, and it is the indispensable prerequisite for an authentic cultural change. So I hope to hear something about that in the questions. And I'm going to close with this because I think it's very, very important. I would now like to say a special word to women who have had an abortion. And here, I'm just going to go through the bold parts. Certainly what happened was and remains terribly wrong. Try rather to understand what happened and face it honestly. The Father of mercies is ready to give you his forgiveness and his peace in the sacrament of reconciliation. You can be among the most eloquent defenders of everyone's right to life. Through your commitment to life, whether by accepting the birth of other children or by welcoming and caring for those most in need of someone to be close to them, you will become promoters of a new way of looking at human life. So one of the things I'd like to hear from all of you, um, or as a point of discussion, is why this section? And, And this is one thing that I challenge my students with. Why this section on abortion? So <coughs> this is the preface, right? This is, this is a year's worth of work. Well, it's more than a year's worth of work. It's a year's worth of documents leading up to the Beijing conference in 1995. And that conference is ostensibly about women in leadership, women having um, a greater role in the world. And if you know your history, it was actually um, a conference about abortion and contraception. It was yet another attempt to get reproductive health to mean abortion, something which the Holy See has brilliantly um, kept this language from ever, ever including at the UN. And so he just simply points out some key teachings that equality is not sameness, right? Again, we, the Catholic Church offers the real, the real version of diversity, of diversity and He, then, he said it would be an impoverishment if we didn't have women and recognize them um, in society, that their issues must include the family, and that there must be the recognition of inherent and alienable dignity of women and the importance of women's presence and participation in all aspects of life. It seems pretty straightforward, right? What's controversial here? I'll get to that in a moment. Um, Slide. Oh, I missed. Okay, sorry. I should have told you slide and then slide. So we're two slides ahead. Sorry. Okay. So he talked about success, and he said your conference is going to be success, whether or not a true means success means whether or not a true vision of women's dignity and aspirations, a vision capable of inspiring and sustaining objective and realistic responses to the suffering, struggle, and frustration that continue to be a part of all too many women's lives. That's what success will be. He says, no response to women's issues can ignore women's role in the family or take lightly the fact that every new life is totally entrusted to the protection and care of the woman carrying it in her womb. 
Now, interestingly, um, when he received the one of the draft, when John Paul II received one of the draft documents, he said this, from the Beijing conference, he said, um, "It's it's ironic that a document that focuses so much on women's fertility should say so little about women's literacy." So again, he was looking at a comprehensive and integral view of of, the, of women. So. Then he writes a letter to women, and he, he thinks, sorry, slide. Oh, it's up there, great. Um, this is addressed to every woman, and, so, and I think somebody used this yesterday. He gives thanks to women in all types of vocations. He says it's time to examine the past with courage. In other words, uh, society and the church have made mistakes. Let's be honest about that, learn from that, and move on. He wanted to look at the obstacles and rights the obstacles facing women, what their rights are. He insisted in, in their participation in society and solutions. And he also said that this is a matter of justice and necessity. So this idea of a new feminism, which rejects models, uh, or rejects the temptations of imitating models of male domination. What is he talking about here? Well, first of all, again, he talked about th th that courage to examine the past um, take, taking in the reality of what, what actually happened, and, and things were not always good. I, I think it's Dr. Scott Hahn who points out, even in the Garden of Eden, right, um, the, the Adam and Eve has been given the command, you know, don't eat the fruit. And Eve is talking to a snake. And you have to wonder, where was Adam? I mean, and, and the word there is actually kind of a monster. It's, it's a much stronger word. It's not the garden snake or the garter snake, right? It's a much stronger word. And you have to wonder, where was Adam? And as I mentioned before, it, the, the punishment for sin, which, I mean, it, it's the sin that causes the tension between men and women. Our differences are constructive. The punishment, to my mind, seems to um, hide who we are. It obfuscates who we are. So really, we're constantly on this journey in many ways of how do we get back to the Garden of Eden? How do we get back to that love story? And actually, as St. Augustine says, you know, we get beyond that. Uh, it's the Felix Culpa, the happy fall. But still, there, there's this, with the, the original idea for marriage and family is there present in the Garden of Eden. And people who want to make fun of the church's teachings on contraception will say, you know, and I had this happen at a talk, one of my co-panelists, he said, well, you know, uh, God may have told Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply, but he didn't tell them to, you know, to keep doing it. They were supposed to stop at some point. That's one way of looking at it. I want to look at it as even more profound, and that is the two commands that were given to Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply and to subdue the earth were given before the fall. In other words, before death entered the world. All right. You didn't need to multiply because um, you needed people to run, you know, you needed to make sure that there would always be people to work on the farm. You didn't need to multiply because you needed people to pay into Social Security, right? Death wasn't part of the equation. It wasn't this idea of multi pro procreation as replacement, right? It was, it rather, it pointed to the true nature of God and his love, and love is effusive. We have the, the Beloved series um, 
which is our program on, for marriage prep and marriage enrichment. And in there, they ask me about love. So the example I use of love, I say, look, if I give you something, if I give you $5, I don't have $5, right? If I give you my rings, my husband's going to be mad. I'm not going to have them anymore, all right? I give you my computer. I no longer have my computer. I give you my house. I don't have a house, and so on and so on. I give love, and I still have love, right? There's still love. And so the, you have to understand the creation narrative starts in this context of absolute love. Love is effusive. People who love, love more. They don't stop loving. And so just as love within the Trinity, I mean, the love between the Father and the Son was so powerful that it is impersonated in the person of the Holy Spirit. That, that's how substantial and effusive it is. Okay, And the love between husband and wife, again, was intended to be so profound, so effusive, that it was supposed to keep manifesting itself and manifesting itself in procreation. And clearly, sin changed that narrative. Now, we fast forward to about the 18th century, and there have been responses, different responses. I mean, I think the church early on offered a response to feminism, as I mentioned in the keynote. But other responses started coming out of the, after the Enlightenment. And, you know, the obvious, it was obvious that men and women were both human. So why is it that they can't, um, you know, why is it that they don't have the same education? And they're capable of it. And other things were happening, too. I mean, we have cultural, cultural changes such that uh, have improved. And this is due to, you know, it, Economies improve, people have more access to education than ever before, more access to means. And, and this just continues, I mean, up until our time. We are a very, very, living in a very, very privileged time. And yet, there are still these tendencies, um, I, th I think, of, of the subjugation of women. And feminism, some feminisms, as I mentioned earlier, there's the suffragettes, they, were, they wanted the right to vote because. Why? Because they were seeing kind of the abuses of men in the family. That was one, and so they wanted a right to vote, to participate in society, to try and correct that. So in a sense, it was a response to men behaving badly. And I frequently hear from conservative men, and, I, and I'll see the occasional blog post, or God forbid, article, um, talking about everything that's wrong with feminism. And I just want to say, if men were to behave better, sorry, um, the women wouldn't have a reason, many of their reasons would be, would be gone. And that's not across the board. But let me tell you, when I was doing my research on gender and, um, gender and feminist theory, almost every book, I didn't realize it until afterwards, so I didn't keep track of it, unfortunately, but almost every book started with a narrative of some type of a hurtful experience with a man. So then that particular thinker, that particular woman, took that experience at that particular experience and made it more of a universal, all right? And it was a response. And, and, and in some ways you can say, well, this, this is, a lot of feminism is a response to, the, to, to original sin and the tensions between men and women. But <clears throat> one of the difficulties is that then feminism, particularly in the 20th century, has really morphed into, at many times, women behaving like men behaving badly. Uh, particularly when we get into the area of sexual mores. And so that's what I want to open the conversation up with. Um, how, well, returning to, the, to John Paul II's original proposal, a new feminism 
which rejects the temptations of imitating models of male domination. And we were warned from the beginning in Genesis that this would be one of the consequences of sin. And so in many ways, um, it, it, all feminism is, I mean, there, there's, you can say that kind of feminism has been around since, since original sin. There's always been some sort of a response. These responses have become more articulate and more explicit. But unfortunately, in many cases, it means women not acting like women, and worse, women behaving like men behaving badly. And I'll leave you with just a, an amusing anecdote. When I came back from Rome, having done this work, and word got out that I'd received this award from the Pope, I was um, asked out on a date by this guy, and I, I really wasn't interested, but my philosophy on dating was if someone's brave enough to ask me out, I mean, I'd, you know, I, I would find that difficult. I should say yes, unless something really tells me I shouldn't. And so we went to lunch, and he spent the entire lunch telling me why John Paul II was so wrong to be talking about the new feminism, because feminists were bad, 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 bad. And so it was really evident that this was not going to go anywhere. And at the end of lunch, the bill came, and he said, okay, your half is. And so here was somebody who'd given this, it, it was just amusing, you know, a diatribe against feminism who had completely bought into one of the feminist principles of going Dutch. So that's just, um, I, I think, a fun little anecdote. I, I had a lot of good laughs over that one. And from here, now I'll leave it to you before we get into any more weak anecdotes. Questions? You know, it'd be good maybe if you use, whoever's asking the question, if you use the microphone. <coughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts on what subjection means from Ephesians 5. Oh, like yeah. how, in the home, like what does that look like? Okay, well, maybe overall in society too, but mostly in the home. Yeah, okay, so first of all, um, wives be subject to your, to your husbands, and of course, most people are afraid, most people don't read on. Husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. And every time I'm in a parish where that controversial part is omitted, I just think, just read the rest of it, give a homily on the rest of it, and every woman is going to stand up and cheer. All right. So I fall back on the thought of Aquinas. So he talks about um, two different types of submission. So there's a servile submission, and there's an economic submission. A servile submission is you give up your will. You are a slave. You don't get to say what your opinion is. Uh, someone else makes decisions for you, all right? You are not, you don't get to live as fully human. That is a servile type of submission. Thomas is clear that in this passage, the type of submission that, um, that, that St. Paul is talking about is an economic submission, which means in every organization, right, you have to have, somebody has to be the head, somebody has to run it. It doesn't mean that they're the most virtuous, it doesn't mean that they're the smartest, it doesn't mean, I mean, it, it, it means that they're the head, right? But it also means that the members don't give up their will. Um, it means that if you need a tiebreaker, that person is gonna be the tiebreaker, somebody has to be, right? Somebody has to be the head of this. Uh, I, it also, in our context, in, it, 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 Paul says that they have to be mutually subject to one another, all right? So again, it's, not, it's clearly not a type of servile subjection. Um, I would go further and say that 
I, I think this is um, the, the model that's presented here. I think that, again, if you read the entire text, if you were to present that idea of the husband um, laying, dying, laying his life down for his wife as Christ died for the church, that is a model that I think most women can buy into. And it's, when that model is lived, you see it, it, it. There are many, many men who live that model. And when you see it lived, their wives are able to very easily accept that, that he's the head of the family. And, but again, I'm not going to give you a checklist for it because I've seen so many marriages, great, holy, good marriages, where the roles are very different and yet the husband is the head. Right? It doesn't mean, because the husband is the head of the family, doesn't mean that the wife might not be better at finances and taxes. All right? It doesn't mean that, I know one family that had, um, I think, 17 or 18 children, and I remember asking one of the older children, I said, how did, how did that work? <laughs> and she said, oh, she said, my dad was the nurturer. She said, my mom, there was no way you could go to my mom in the middle of the night, because she always had a baby with her. She said, so we went to my dad. My dad was the nurturer, all right? I know another family that um, was unable to have children, and the, 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 they, they began to uh, foster to adopt, and they are an amazing family. And because of circumstances, the husband is a stay-at-home dad, and the wife works. And yet, there's no question um, in my mind when I see them and I do interact with them that he's the head of the family. So how it, these are principles, they're guiding principles, all right? How they play out is going to be very different for each family, but what's going to be fundamental is the idea of respect and mutual subjection, and frankly, I think the call for men is much more challenging there than for women. I think the women, we run around griping about it, but I think the men have the greater challenge, so I hope that helps. Any other questions? Yeah, do you want to come and take the microphone? That way everybody can hear you. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, one of the things that was mentioned yesterday was that maybe Margaret Thatcher wasn't such a great model for female leadership. <laughs> and yet Pope John Paul II called for feminine genius, which you know means in the political environment. Can you point to some role models that do that well, that really bring that feminine genius, especially in the political arena where so much is about power? Yeah. Uh, so I was asked that question yesterday as well in the breakout session. Um, and I, the first thing I, I want to say is that to me, now I was fairly young when Margaret Thatcher was on the world stage. She struck me as feminine. So I'm not looking at it with the same perspective as Dr. Newton's grandmother. Um, and, and I would love to kind of challenge what, what it was that, that ruffled her feathers or uh, you know, put her off. I mean, I'm sure there was something real. I would love to know what it was. That said, uh, I don't think there are a whole lot. One of the best examples that I don't know well, but I'm, I'm speaking from a distance, was the example of Benazir Bhutto. The, she was the Prime Minister of Pakistan. And when she, was, when she came back the second time around, they killed her. But she always looked feminine, acted feminine. I mean, there was nothing about her uh, that I ever saw. And again, I've not done an in-depth study, but I've done enough reading that it, it really, she really struck me by the way that she was able to integrate her, her femininity with this role of leadership. 
Um, I will say I've worked with a lot of members of Congress, and because it's been a while since I've worked with them, I don't remember their names, but there are a lot of women members in Congress that may not make the headlines, but they have a wonderful strength and intelligence, and they are very articulate. Um, like I said, they're not, they're, making, they're not making the national headlines, but they are doing tremendous work. I also think at the, there's, there's I, I loved uh, Sarah Palin's story, we're not gonna talk about what happened afterwards, but the story, um, the beginning, where she became involved in local government. I loved that, because I think that's really important. So many women are very much aware of the needs of their local communities. I have a sister-in-law that I'm just like, you know, pushing her, when are you running for city council? Because she understands it, she gets it. Not to mention the fact that she helps um, my brother to run its business, so she understands the, the business and the budget side of it as well. Um, there's just a lot, I think there are a lot of opportunities that we don't see, but I would challenge you to put yourself in those situations if you feel called to it, and have to, or even if, if the opportunity arises, <laughs> and you're feeling pushed to do it, and you feel this Holy Spirit job, do it. Um, and then uh, some of these individual women in Congress, and again, I, I regret that I don't remember their names, but they, if you look them up, some of them are just really, really lovely, intelligent women um, that are fantastic leaders and brilliant. Yes? Hi, thanks for being here. Um, my question's kind of related, um, and it's kind of still formulating, so excuse me, um, but how do you respond to those who um, kind of view women in leadership roles negatively? Um, when sometimes, I mean, they basically say, how dare you, you know, um, pursue, you know, this, you know, higher um, status in a company or even ecclesiastically, um, like working in the church. Um, yeah, what is your response, um, obviously charitable response, to people who might um, see it as kind of more of a power grab um, than you know, just living out what the Lord, you know, the passion that the Lord has put in your heart and, you know, trying to, um, trying to do good in the world. One of the first things I would ask, I would ask questions. <laughs> Socrates was right. Um, ask questions, ask them why they have a difficulty with that. Because usually it's not a principle, it's a particular situation that set them off and is continuing to trigger them. And then I would be ready with some examples of women in leadership. And depending of the audience that you're speaking to, I mean, can you use examples from scripture? Have, have women that, that you fall back on and women examples that you can pull up. Be ready for the conversation. If you need secular examples, find them and be ready. But I would start the conversation by asking, what is it? Why is it that you think that that's wrong? Because that's probably going to go back to some particular experience that they have. Um, they're going to remember a particular shrewd, you know, witchy woman politician that they don't like. And you can point out 10 awful male politicians that they probably don't like either. Uh, it, it's a little bit of contextualizing it, but I would start with the question and it really entering into what is, you're, you're not going to understand their question unless you understand where it's coming from and then be prepared with your examples. 
this might not be academic, but that's okay. Good. Um, <laughs> you said equality isn't sameness, which is true. Um, so I know I need to be a witness, but how would I respond verbally to a very um, intense extreme feminism of that campaign that pushes for um, it, it to be legal for women to be topless in New York City? Um, and an example, my sister says, who lives in New York City, says, oh, I... Um, I would never, um, you know, partake in that, but I want it to be available to the women who do want that. Um, so. Okay, so could you give me the start of the question again? Just yeah, so, I'm sure okay, I got it. so I know that, it, you know, just I am, ha I have an influence, but how would I respond verbally to, um, you know, it should be okay for something like that. Okay. That's a hard question. We had that one come up when I was living in Seattle, and uh, it was actually the woman who pushed the example had had um, a mastectomy. So she said, I should be able to go to the swimming pool and swim without a top, and everybody should just leave me alone. And she said that it was painful for her to swim with a top given her surgical condition. So first of all, bad cases make really bad law. And I think we kind of need to, to, it's always just backing up. And sometimes, sometimes you're not going to be able to, to win every conversation. It's just a question of planting seeds. But I think it's also a question of saying, well, okay, maybe there are some, some particular cases. But by and large, when you know, women's breasts are exposed like that, um, it, it does cause a sensation. People, men are in particular, are aware. Other people are aware, and I, 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 I would. There's different ways that you could approach it. Um, if, if someone's open to a conversation on modesty, one of the most interesting conversations that I've heard was uh, a priest who proposed that when women dress immodestly, it's a type of rape on a man, because we just most women we we don't really understand how men's hormones work. And I remember a boyfriend telling me, look, the difference between your hormones and mine is one to a billion. Um, we don't, you know, sometimes we simply do not understand that. And uh, I had a shopping experience with a niece, 13, and she said, would you help me pick out a bathing suit? And I said, well, okay. And we were in the store, and she's, I think, wet seal or something, and they were all like these tiny, tiny little bikinis. And she said, I said, well, I'm not really comfortable. And we're talking about our own money. I said, I'm not really comfortable within picking any of these for you. I also realized that I'm not going to be able to win this fight, all right, because this is something that has to do with her parent, you know, her parent, this is her parents' job, and she's only with me for a small amount of time. I said, if you want to spend your money on it, that's your choice, but I don't feel comfortable picking one of those for you. And she said, why? And so I said, I think it's hypersexualized, and I went on and on and on, and I forgot the mind of a 13-year-old girl because she looked at me and she said, well, no, no, she said, it's, it, that's for, for good tan lines, so I don't get tan lines. That's for tanning. And I thought, oh, my gosh. When I was 13, that's what I thought. <laughs> all right? We have to remember where people are coming from. So that is, uh, that, that's a tangent. All right? But it, I don't think most women are taught to realize that they're, it's weird because on the one hand, the contemporary cultural style of beauty is based on whether or not a woman can arouse a man, right? And on the other hand, we don't want to have a serious conversation about how women's bodies impact men. 
which is weird. I mean, it, it, there's, uh, there's definitely a disconnection there. Um, but I think that, you know, some of those conversations you're not always going to win, but I would just start with, you know, you can talk about the purpose of the body, the significance of the body, but also you can talk about uh, that some things, it's, it's appropriate for some things to be intimate. You know, before I got married, I remember talking to a woman um, who was in her 70s, and I said, you know, I said, the thing I find most intimidating about going into marriage is that I feel like we've been assaulted by all these images and films and everything, and even if you've tried to not watch things, it doesn't matter, you've been exposed. And she said, um, in Italian, she said, è la vostra storia di inventare. It is your story to create, yours with your husband's. And so the body is part of that, and this is part of, this is part of me, and it's not that I'm ashamed of it, it's that it's not something that is appropriate for everybody to see. And, and, and secondly, it does have an impact on people. It does have a, an impact on men. And so we have to be thinking about others. And sometimes those laws are thinking about one person in one particular situation rather than how is this going to affect other people. So that's a very rambling, I think, it's a rambling answer, but I think a lot of these things you have to start with stories and figuring out where people are coming from. There, I don't think that there are easy answers, and preaching usually doesn't work. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask what you see as the distinction between feminine strength and masculine strength. Oh, that's really good. Uh, I, I think it gets back to the maternal and the paternal. Because you see strong women and you see strong men. And I, I think it gets back to how is it expressed in a, in a maternal, or pater, maternal or paternal way um, at kind of the metaphysical level, at the level of being. That would be the difference to me. And, um, and again, that's, I get that that's very abstract, but it, it's abstract for a reason, because I want it to fit lots of cases. Um, it just seems that pro-choicers seem to be moving more and more to accepting that an unborn child is a human from conception. Um, and yet feminism pushes for still wanting that choice. So I was wondering how, um, if the new feminism is, it plays that out differently or how you're seeing this change it at all. Sure. Uh, again, it depends on who's talking about the new feminism, right? Um, it, it's articulated in a lot of different ways. But I do think that the, um, the new feminism is proposing that the ability to have children is not a bad thing. And what modern feminism has been telling us in lots of different ways is that having children and the ability to have children is a bad thing, right? You are, again, it, it's almost like the same criteria for fashion. You're, you, 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 you should dress to arouse a man and your behavior should be to arouse, your sexual behavior should be to arouse a man. And when I got married, somebody as a joke gave me a bunch of sex books. And I was going to throw them out, and I thought, hmm, given what I, my work, maybe I'll flip through them. And I was shocked that in, this is a, I mean, we're in the 21st century, right? And a lot of these books are about how to pleasure the man and then how to pleasure yourself. And I'm coming from, like, love and responsibility world, 
which is very, very different. <laughs> which is, it's about both people. <laughs> um, and, and finally, if you're talking about pleasure, it's about both people in union uh, affecting that. But I think that the, 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 the distinction between a lot of the secular feminisms and the new feminism is that the new feminism sees woman in her entirety. We are looking at the woman as her entire being. And a lot of these other types of feminism are looking at, and they're influenced by Marxism, yes, and influenced by other things, but they're looking at woman as, woman as a mother, as a worker, as a lover, as this, as that, never woman in her entirety. So when you're focused on the um, secular and professional advancement of women, if accepting this other part of her that is very vulnerable and open to creating life, um, is, it kind of gets in the way. It's messy. It throws off the quotas. And in fact, there was an article in the New York Times just around the time that my husband was in business school at Wharton, and they were talking about the fact that all the top business schools were lowering their criteria for women to get into school because they knew that women were going to leave the workforce earlier because women want to have children. And so the, the, the feminists are trying to say, just blow past that part of yourself. Don't accept that part of yourself. And I think the new feminism is saying, no, this is part of who a woman is and, and in her entirety, and it has to be part of the equation. And if a woman is married and having children, that's going to impact her career. And, it, and hopefully it'll be a constructive. I, I find these things very... Con to me, in my mind, they, they should all be constructive elements. There are challenges, but they can also be constructive. So that's the difference that I would say between the new feminism and the old feminism or the secular feminism is not seeing fertility or the ability to become a mother as a gift, as a good thing. They see it as, as a vulnerability to be avoided at almost any cost and, and, and while you're in the midst of pursuing these other goals. And I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, there was a book written, oh, at least 10 years ago. I think it was called Creating a Life by Sylvia Ann Hewitt. And she was an economist. And she went and she interviewed all these top-level um, CEO-type women who had achieved you know, tremendous, tremendous success in the business world. And she was interviewing them from the perspective of you know, the business part, the economics part. And she ended up writing a different book. The book that she wrote was because every woman that she talked to didn't want, they didn't want to talk about their success. What they wanted to talk to her about was their loss. The loss of not having children and, in many cases, not being married. And so she wrote this book, which was very true, very sad, and nobody bought it, despite the fact that there was like, tremendous marketing on it and it got on all the top news talk shows and everything. And I think that nobody bought it because people already knew deep down that that's true, and I think that that's a story that um, it's a reality that I think a lot of women struggle with, and that's where the new feminism, I think, can offer so much more. Yes. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, I guess my question, and you can maybe blame it just on my age or my situatedness, I'm not in a place in my life where I understand motherhood and my capacity for maternity as a 20-year-old 
laywoman. So I guess my question is, are there other traits that we can identify as being authentically feminine um, besides this capacity for motherhood? Because to me, that's just a little abstract right now. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. It's a very abstract principle. What I would do is challenge you just to keep unpacking it and, and looking at the women that you know that are mothers and unpack it and see if you, there are certain principles that you can apply in your own life, in the day-to-day -day life. But other traits, um, I go back to John Paul II's ability when he talks about the ability of the woman to see the entire human person, or more so than men can. And I worked in my dad's law office from the time that I was 11, and I remember distinctly, I mean, my dad's a great guy, and he's very caring and so forth, and there's plenty of times when he went out of his way to do something, you know, good for people and so forth. But I do remember distinctly kind of these stereotypical, and these are huge generalizations, but this is what happened in his office, right? Um, he would come into his office and he would see his secretary, or if she wasn't there, he'd see that. He, but at, at that same moment, when he, if, that he saw his secretary, when his secretary saw him, she would see, oh, I wonder if one of his kids is, you know, giving him problems again. And I wonder if he, you know, he looks upset. It might be that brief. Did he remember this for his wife? She was remembering all these things, right? And, and, it, it, and again, it's a generalization, but I think it's an example that it works, that works to help to show that women kind of see, we have that gift of seeing the person. And in Mulieris Dignitatum, John Paul II develops this precisely because of maternity, we have a capacity for relationality. So even if we're not mothers, even if we've never experienced pregnancy, there is something built into us, which is that capacity for relationality. And so the, the, the child's first experience of anything is through the mother. And in that document, he says that it's, it's the, the mother introduces the, the father to paternity. Again, some, that was a phrase that upset some conservatives. But, it, and, and it really, the mother is so important for introducing the child to this I to reality through relationality, right? And that's also why you need dads, because sometimes, you know, dads are the ones that help to push the little bird out of the nest, all right? And yet, if you look at a whole host of, of literature on um, addiction and other psychological issues, it's fascinating how much of it goes back to the family. And I really, I mean, and even the, the people don't learn how to be human. And it is from, primarily from women that people learn relationality. Now, that doesn't mean that men aren't relational. It doesn't mean that they can't teach it. For God's sake, I hope that they do as husbands and fathers and as colleagues. It just means that it's something, by and large, more innate to women. Here he is, blessed among women. You, the, the, one of the few men. Thank you again. Um, a few weeks ago, I watched a video by the now Saint Jose Maria Escrivá, and he was in one of his get-togethers, and somebody asked him a question, much like this, about women and the role of women. And he made, first he prefaced, he made it very clear that it is not that the woman should be at home. It's not the case. Should be what? At home. Mm -hmm. But that you guys speaking to women, you women are better at it than men. Let's just be honest. Uh, that's what he said. Um, and then he, he kind of alluded to a spiritual kind of thing that's going on, which he didn't really talk much about, which is what I want to ask you. Uh, where he, and he said that, I mean, much like Dr. Newton said, that 
women should be like snails, they take the home with them. Um, he said that if you bring down women, you bring down the home and you bring down the family. Uh, so I was wondering if you think, and if you do, then if you could speak to it, what is going on spiritually? Is there something going on spiritually that is actually trying to bring down women to bring us all down? Okay, yeah, I, my opinion, yes, absolutely. There is something spiritually that's being done to bring down women. And for me, this I kind of had this little aha moment. Did, I'm assuming most of you watched um, Mel Gibson's The Passion. All right, so there's that scene during the scourging where the devil is mocking Mary with the incarnation, and he's carrying that just grotesque baby. And at least I understood it to be a mocking of the incarnation. Um, I think that just as in the garden, I mean, the devil understood that a couple of things. One, that women are foundational for society, right? And, and yesterday in the breakout, I mentioned um, we have tons of sociological evidence for uh, immigration populations. The populations that assimilate the best are the ones that have the highest percentage of women. Your, your success of assimilation correlates to the percentage of women in that population. As the number of women goes down, assimilation goes down. So I think that, um, and, and I do think that the devil very, in a very real way, understands the relational capacity of women. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you another thing, because I used to work on the trafficking issue, sex trafficking issue, and, which is like, oh my gosh, that's TMI, but, um, and I, but I try and stay abreast of it. And I, I think that there's another spiritual component to it, and that is that and this ties back to my little moment with the passion, and that is that if the devil can attack women and make it seem that, it's, that they're less than, that they're not worthy, that they're just objects, um, if they can be degraded and seen as people who should be degraded, then it makes it almost impossible to accept the incarnation. The incarnation makes no sense if you don't accept fundamentally the dignity of a woman. And, and I, you know, in an analogous way, I think that you can say any type of degradation towards men as well, you know, really challenges the notion of the incarnation. But I, there's something in me that thinks that the, the, the part about women is even more fundamental because it's the woman's capacity for, um, for relationality, which I also think exists at an intellectual level, at an epistemological level. And that's why I brought up the example of Mary, uh, and the mother of God. I mean, she's a 13-year-old girl, and, and Zachariah is, you know, a, a, a priest up in years, super educated, <laughs> in the Holy of Holies, with the angel appearing to him, talking to him, answering the prayer that he and his wife have had. And he doesn't get it, right? And I think that Mary, with her ability to say yes, to me there's a, because uh, I did a lot of my, in my research, I, I did a whole section on epistemology, but I think that it points to the ability, um, it, 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 it also points to a relational ability, because you cannot know unless you have a relationship with the object. And this is one of the epistemological crises that comes out of the Enlightenment, in particular Descartes, and, and the whole system of knowing has changed. And I think you need the feminine is primarily that's where the relational begins in order to, um, in order to know. And so Mary is able to, to know, I mean, and understand more than Zachariah, who's this 
super educated, highly regarded priest. I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind, you know? And, and even when Aquinas talks about Mary Magdalene, he taught, there's a question about whether or not the resurrection should have been made manifest to all men. So in the Latin there, it's hominibus. And, the, um, and one of the objectors says, well, oh my gosh, yes. If Jesus was going to appear to Mary, like some woman, are you kidding me? He should have appeared to all men. And Aquinas responds, no, because insofar as, she, as you could merit something like this, she did so because she loved so greatly. And you have to remember that in his system, you love because you know, and you know because you love. There's a reciprocity there, right? So I do think that women have a particular gift for relationality and also for understanding and even the intellectual life. I think it's no mistake that throughout Western civilization, wisdom and understanding have been personified as women, all right? Um, but, and I think it's all because of all of that and the conclusion being the incarnation that I do think that there is a, a particular spiritual attack on women um, because if you, if, if you attack women, the incarnation just doesn't make sense. And, and you see that in, some, in cultures around the world that, um, and, that aren't Christian and you see the way in which they, they treat women. And I just ask myself, how hard would it be to go into that culture and say, oh my gosh, this 13-year-old girl was responsible, or 17, whatever scripture dating you're using, but this young woman was responsible for the salvation of the world. It could not have happened without her. We needed Christ, but he depended on her, which is, you know, you could talk a whole lot about the vulnerability and, and interdependency, but that's a separate topic. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.